Shalom and thank you for listening to Progressively Jewish, the podcast through which you can explore and connect to Judaism through a progressive Jewish lens. I'm Rabbi Richard Jacobi and it's my pleasure to host this week's episode for the portion of Balak, which covers the book of Numbers, chapter 22, verse 2, through to chapter 25, verse 9. The jumping-off point for this week's theme of synagogue stems from perhaps the most famous verse recited by the non-Jewish seer Bilam. Matovu o halecha Yaakov mishkanotecha Yisrael. How good are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. In the 16th century, Obadius Forno commented that dwelling places referred to synagogues and sanctuaries. Our discussion will explore just how good or lovely or fitting are the dwelling places, the synagogues and sanctuaries of the people of Israel. To explore the topic of synagogue with me are two rabbinic thinkers and teachers on this subject. Rabbi Lawrence Hoffman is the Emeritus Professor at the Hebrew Union College in New York, where he taught for nearly 50 years. He's the co-founder in 1994 of Synagogue 2000, which morphed into Synagogue 3000, and is also the author of over 40 books, including Rethinking Synagogues, which he wrote in 2007. Now, Larry has been a frequent visitor to the United Kingdom and has familiarised himself a little with um, UK Jewry, but would also be very hesitant at claiming to be um, an expert of it and more familiar with the US. And I know he'd want me to give that rider on everything he's going to say. But welcome, Larry. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Here also is Rabbi Shulamit Ambalu, um, and she moved to Sharei Tzedek North London Reform Synagogue from Kahila North London, which she co-led with lay partners to remarkable effect. While she was there, she developed one of my favourite texts called Some Never See a Map, uh, co-authored with Claire Hellman, and it was subtitled A Talmud for Creative Community Leadership. So welcome, Shulamit. Lovely to have you here too. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Now, I want to begin the question with um, an exploration of something that is going back into Jewish tradition, which says that the synagogue has been seen as three things. The Beit Tefillah, the house of prayer, the Beit Midrash, the house of study, and the Beit Knesset, the house of meeting. So let me ask you both, if I may, and I'm going to come to you, Shulamit, first. How true still is this three-part role, um, or was this three-part role, for synagogues in the first two decades of the 21st century? Shulamit, begin, please. So, Larry um, and um, Richard, um, I... Um, I find that like a very, very kind of literal, um, a very kind of literal and kind of bricks and I, I react to that as a kind of very literal bricks and mortar type question. And it really, and indeed I think the synagogue that I serve, Shari Tzedek, 
frames its programs around those three categories because uh, my community has taken that as a, a very literal and guiding principle. But the problem with it, and, and I think it probably has attempted to deliver um, the idea of the Beit Midrash, the Beit Tefillah, and um, the Beit Knesset, the House of Meeting, Prayer and Study, but in an immensely literal way. So we've thought about the synagogue itself as a place, as a physical building, as a bayit, and that bayit, that house, um, also is a kind of mental one. So we also think about it framing our programmes, um, or how we work or who we are and how we're delivering, even our staffing, our job descriptions and so on and so on, running that through everything we do. But I think it's, um, as we hit this time now, but I think previously we didn't realise that we needed to move away from being a house and more into, as your starting point for this podcast is, a field of tents which are much more flexible because you began this podcast with the idea how beautiful are your tents and your dwelling places but um, I'm someone who loves the outdoors loves camping I'm fanatical about um, camping I think that nomadic history is very deep in my bones um, and of course our Mishkan our wilderness tabernacle was something that could be assembled and reassembled always in the same in the same format but nevertheless was flexible and movable and I think we got too locked in to these houses too locked into our buildings too locked into our bricks and mortar and too locked into having a very solid and unflexible way of doing things so I think yes that has guided us and I'm not sure it's been good for us what do you think Larry? First of all, let me tell you how happy I am to be here on this podcast with you. I've known Richard for a good long time, and Richard knows of my high regard for him and for all that he's doing and any help I can give to him and uh, to the progressive voice of Jews uh, anywhere, especially in the UK, which is so close to my heart. Uh, I will certainly be there and do what I can. And Shulamit, I'm very happy to be on with you. I think it's worth being here with you just to just to meditate again on some never see a map. I think that's one of the greatest titles in the world and very important concept. Um, I, um, I, I think of my own uh, book title, Rethinking Synagogues that uh, Richard mentioned. I've been thinking about synagogues for a very long time now. And my role sometimes is to be controversial. My role sometimes is to see the larger picture and to try and project as far ahead as I can, uh, as much as I can anyway. And I'm going to practice that today. So I'm going to try and be a little controversial, even radical at times, um, and try to figure out exactly where we're going and, and, and what, what the options might be. Uh, in the long run, I'm... I'm uh, I'm very bullish on the synagogue. I think the synagogue has a great future, but I think we have to reshape it and rethink it. Let's start with the three roles. It's important to see that these three roles, uh, even though they are traditional, not universal. I mean, the synagogue began as a place of meeting. That's what it did most. The Greek synagogue, from which we get synagogue, really means meeting. And then in Hebrew, it's Beit Knesset, which is a place of meeting. But it's really not just a place. It's also the people gathered there. When that, that meaning has been lost to us. So they gathered. Was there study there? Well, yes, there was. Probably some study there from the early years. There's a Greek inscription from the first century 
by a Jew with the what we would think of the unlikely name of Theodotus, but that just shows you that Jews were as acculturated there as they are, uh, as we are now. And he says he gave money for the synagogue. Yes, apparently they kept track of who gave money too. Uh, but that he says he did it for in part that people could read scripture and learn its laws. So that's sort of like study, but it's not the kind of study we think of. You know, the rabbinic give and take and commentaries and so on. That's obviously very much later. This is more like reading a constitution uh, or a founding statement, uh, which was what scripture is, and debating the constitutional interpretations. We know that Jesus and Paul in the first century attended synagogues, and they argue there, and they preach there. But guess what? They never they never pray there. You will never catch them praying in a synagogue because prayer doesn't enter synagogue until, believe it or not, as late as the fourth. And now some scholars are thinking as late as the sixth century. So rabbinic prayer and study are latecomers. Also, once they do become part of the synagogue, it's important to see that there's a big difference through time as to who's been doing any one of the three. To say that synagogues are places for these means usually just from the, for the men. I mean, women didn't even come for most of the synagogue's history. Uh, when they did start coming, they got balconies or they got seats behind a mechitza, behind a curtain perhaps, and sometimes just standing room. And they didn't usually go and weren't expected to. Study, yes, women actually did study and some of them were taught Torah we now know in the Middle Ages, but not necessarily in synagogues. Synagogues are very largely places for the men. The traditional categories then are romanticizations and they're not absolute. They don't have to be the ones we think about mostly, uh, even though sometimes they're useful. I, I certainly don't disagree with any of the three of them. They're all very important Jewish values. If I have to answer your question though, uh, though Richard, stick with them, I will. Um, I would say that here in America anyway, prayer has declined. Study has grown, at least here, but marginally. So maybe in a Torah study group in a congregation, you'll get large congregation or medium size, maybe not large, you'll get 60 people attending regularly instead of 40. That's a third more, but still not most of the congregation. Um, and most of those are hardcore synagogue loyalists, the people who show up for everything. As for meeting, well, meeting just for the sake of meeting is almost non-existent. I mean, um, we meet as part of our other functions, stick around for a kiddush afterwards, or, you know, but um, do people really say, oh, let's just go and hang out at the synagogue? I mean, that certainly doesn't happen. Prayer continues, as I say, uh, and for men and women, but now mostly older people come. You don't see a lot of young people. And as I say, community gathering just for the purpose of gathering is sparse, if at all. So what we are seeing is a new allotment of function according to age. So over the last 20 years, if you look back, you can see it started the century before, but what you see is that synagogue study is mostly for children with a handful of study regulars who are adults. Synagogues are actually zoned into school areas where parents drop off their children, but don't stay themselves for anything. Judaism has itself become child-centered. I call it pediatric. Even gathering is specifically for teenagers who have their own youth lounges here. In other words, we have age-specific activities now. 
there's just not much family gathering, even though we try hard to have it. Once in a while, we get a successful group of families coming, but we certainly don't get hundreds and hundreds of people. Now, I'm generalizing and I'm painting perhaps an overly negative picture perhaps, but the trend is definitely there. So I'm suggesting that we have to reconceptualize what synagogues do and for whom they do it. Synagogues are more necessary than ever, but the old categories don't always work so well. Thank you, Larry. Okay, so that's going to give us a, um, a real prod to make some of the changes. And, and, and in many ways, as much as Shulamit, your comment about loving the out outdoor world and wanting to be outside the bricks and mortar, uh, you reminded me of something that uh, Rabbi Professor Tony Bayfield um, would say um, as he was a lover of the, the play on words, the pun, and he always described Judaism as an intense experience. Very nice. We, um, we, we, I think we need to be just aware, though, that... Um, we, we think of synagogues here as buildings or as, as, as sort of organizations that deliver things, but actually we're communities um, which age and grow and which die and which are reborn and that are formed by the unique collection of people in each one of them. Um, and so what we're, it's fascinating for me, Larry, to hear you, to imagine that, that those people in, you know, that built those, built those early synagogues, or in fact, just like us, they were people who had their own investments in, in the community who wanted to stamp their names on, who wanted to donate, who wanted to be remembered, who wanted perhaps to create a place where their children would have some sort of status or some sort of memory of them. And um, actually, we're, we're not just kind of people who are delivering experiences and programs, but we're communities that are creating places where people um, can kind of live their lives and find their identities. And, um, and it's that community aspect that is unique and special to each one of us. So that my community, which is in uh, the north of London, not very many miles from other, maybe three or four, five or six other very large synagogues, and nothing like the others, because then it's not formed or created by the people with the same values or ideas or backgrounds as the others. And, and that create that is a really interesting but difficult reality because it means we can't certainly we should be talking about what is our mission, our value, our purpose, our future, but we're actually holding hands with very different groups of people as we as we move forward and we have to think really carefully about um, the Jewish lives that intersect in each of our communities and our stories um, what makes us special and unique and how that change over time. Shulamit, made you speak quite beautifully about that and I agree with you a hundred percent. That's one of the reasons that I emphasize the word synagogue in the Greek meaning the people who attend not so much the building in which they attend. And Beit Knesset didn't necessarily have a bayit. It wasn't necessarily a place. It was a gathering, a gathering, a gathering of people. Um, I'm going to get later on to what I think about, about mission and purpose. Uh, but for now, I, I love what you say. One of the things I like to do is redefine Judaism for all practical purposes. Of course, Judaism is more than this, but I define it as a conversation because we can, we can measure people's intensity of experience and what they care about most uh, as a function of what they talk about. 
and where people invest their time and energy and where there are places that touch their lives, they develop a conversation about it. And I think the synagogue, I think of the synagogue as a gathering of people to rehearse the Jewish conversation of the centuries and to connect that conversation with people's lives. Can I ask you a question, Larry? Because I think that is so fascinating what you said about prayer, not until the sixth century. And um, I think prayer is, re personally, I think prayer is really hard today. You know, I don't know what you, your experiences are, both of you, but I think I've never found it as hard as it is today. I find it like fantastically difficult. And we'll talk about that a bit in a, in a minute about what makes it so difficult. But can you just explain to me, how is that? that and I'm sure you're right, um, that, you know, there wasn't the kind of gathering in the synagogue for prayer until the sixth century, but we have these texts that demand that, you know, we recite these prayers that come down to us from much earlier on. Are you saying that these are kind of like, not actually really prayer as we understand prayer, but they are kind of formulaic repetitions of something that are done in communities, but they're not sort of prayer. As, I mean, what do you mean by prayer, actually? I think uh, we'll probably, as I say, talk about prayer a little more, but for now, um, when last, I always ask the question, when we read something in a rabbinic text of the second century, let's say, say the Mishnah, the formulation of Jewish thought, rabbinic thought, that is to say, from about the year 200, and you see that Rabbi so-and-so said something or other. Uh, do we think of that as a, um, as a bill, that, that uh, a parliamentary bill that everyone now pays attention to? Or do we think of that as an inter-office memo? And the real answer is it's more like an inter-office memo. The rabbis wrote for one another, and in its time, not a lot of people paid attention to it. Synagogues, therefore, were gathering places, like the gathering places throughout the Roman Empire. Um, rabbis had very little to do with it, and in fact, in the third century, you hear about rabbis who avoid it, like the plague, because they know that this is the place where the ordinary people hang out. So only eventually do the, rabbi, do the rabbis enter the synagogue and it takes centuries for them to become rabbinic places. The rabbis studied and the rabbis prayed among their own type, but it didn't become universal to people all over the place. As you say, people are people everywhere, right? And so it didn't become universal for several centuries. And probably what, what helped it along was the growth of Christianity when churches began getting built in the fourth century, Christianity now becomes you know, the empire's religion. And as churches grow, so synagogues become more religious. That's probably what happens. So that, and, and as you were talking, I was, I was wondering, is, was it, is this a response to the popularity of, of Christianity? And, you, and that's where you ended up. So that, in a way, I, I feel that, that where you're taking me is an understanding that there's this constant evolution and growth and change in response to external circumstances and internal circumstances. And I've, I find that quite frightening in a way to think where we could be headed, given that here we all are at this moment, we're not even on the same continent. Uh, we're all in our own homes. We're having, or our offices, I'm lucky enough to be in my synagogue building actually today, which is fantastic. Um, but we, we might tell ourselves, fine, we can we do everything perfectly well without ever having to gather ever again. And we'll, we'll just reformulate ourselves. Should we reformulate ourselves into this wonderful, perfectly individualized, personalized, remote experience? Since we've changed so much already, why not keep changing now? 
Well, for me, I'd love to go to one of your tents. So count me in your synagogue. And next time I'm over there, I'm going to not just pick up my phone. I'll be with you. God, that will happen. Thank you both so much for sparking off each other in this way. And and in some ways, you've, you've also alighted on the, the fact that the coronavirus crisis pandemic across the world has been a disruptor like no other that we've experienced um, in, I think, our lifetimes. And you've just touched on it. And it's likely to have long-term and enduring effects on synagogues and all sorts of other institutions in the faith sector and in other sectors in, in, in the community as well. And I just wonder if you might briefly pick out some of the things where you think this pandemic is having potentially major impacts on our communities, our synagogues. Um, Larry, a response? Yeah, I'll be a little, I'll be, <clears throat> I'll be a little uh, briefer uh, now. I, I, I don't mean to be long-winded. Um, Shulamade raised the issue very clearly about why not sit in your own homes? And that's the negative part of it. If people just sit where they are. I just read a joke somewhere where somebody says, uh, uh, I think I'd like to go somewhere. Some that I realize I have to get dressed and leave the house. And so there is that sort of problem for people. But on the other hand, there's something about family life that we picked up uh, on Zoom. Um, now, Jews have always, unlike Christians, uh, Christians won the world when they became, when, the, when the, the empire became Christian, but they lost Christian homes because they ended up making their ritual all in massive churches, like the ritual that had been part of the imperial empire. Whereas we have retained Judaism in the home. There isn't anything that we do in the synagogue that we don't also have a home part too, like Shabbat dinner and so on. And that's a beautiful thing. And one of the things that people had forgotten about is how beautiful that can be. So I think we've learned how to make, we've learned how to make our homes a sort of a, 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 a sacred place in the way that once we knew about and, and now we've forgotten about. Uh, people make the mistake of thinking, well, I don't keep all of Shabbat, so I won't keep any of it. I mean, so once you identify as Shabbat, it's always oh, 24 hours. Oh, my God, how who can do that? But to think of Shabbat as an opportunity for an hour, an hour of this or two hour dinner of that and maybe go online with another family. Uh, I'm online Friday night with my children who live in who live in Canada. Uh, and it's, it's really quite wonderful. So I think that's here to stay. And I think we want to foster that. Um, but now back to synagogues, we have discovered something that I'd like to call the totality of the of the human experience, the fullness of the human condition is how I put it. Um, I define religion as the practice of communicating in a register that does justice to the human condition. So Judaism must do justice to the human condition. And um, we don't always do that. I've already talked about uh, targeting age audiences and not always the right ones. Uh, adults wonder about life, but we don't always help them wonder about it. Synagogues have to be a place then where we not only talk about what to eat and you know how you gather and hello, hello and so on, but we have to be able to talk about the fullness of human life. One of the problems of synagogues is they've been happy. We have specialized in happy, happy. 
We Jews love Shechianu. Hooray, we raised this tag. Thanks for life itself. We love Mazel Tov of Simon Tov. Mazel Tov, sing, sing, happy, happy, clap, clap. But you know what? Um, actually, the human, the human condition is hard. And that's one of the things we learned in COVID. We learned about entropy. The human condition he is facing is always mortality facing entropy. And so that hit us like a ton of bricks all over the world. We discovered also that it's human. And so we discovered that we Jews are part of humanity. Now, a progressive Jewish voice, that was no surprise. We always thought of ourselves as human uh, and as part of the human family. But to see what this, what can happen to us because of entropy, the entropy in this case of a, of a pandemic, that hit us very hard. The human project then is to defy entropy and, and, and to matter in our lives. Synagogues have to help us matter. And that means what I'd like to call to discover eternity, even as we are mortals who know that we will pass from this earth. So the Jewish message is, is, is part of the plan of eternity, I, I would like to say, but that means we need to translate Judaism better than we have been for our time. And we need to get away from thinking about Judaism for children and say, the best thing we can do for our children is to have adults who discover what Judaism can mean in their lives. So the children can aspire to be like their parents. I can give you examples of how translation if you want, but for right now, I just to say that we have a message that is timely and timeless. And we need to be able to get that message out of synagogues are messaging places about every aspect of life and all the human condition, not just happy, happy, but also lament and sadness and surprise and pandemic and the will to matter in this world and having a moreness to what our life is all about, then that must become part of our message. It always was, but because of secularization, we've kind of dropped it and we have to stop that. Thank you so much, Larry. There's there's so much I'm going to unpack when I listen to back to this again um, down the line, I think. Uh, and it, it struck me that perhaps you're also touching on what Shulamit mentioned earlier, which was the difficulty of prayer in this time. Um, and that might pick up, but I, I didn't want to tell you that that's what you have to reply to this question, Shulamit. If that's part of your reply, that's lovely. If not, we'll come back to it. Shulamit, what are your thoughts? I, mean, I just want to say, I think, so inspiring listening to you, Larry. I really love the way that you you take the the kind of, you go from the ground up, you know, and you take us and you, you get us to look forward and out into the future in the, and the bigger, the bigger future when we've all, especially at the moment, we're all kind of narrowing our vision down to, I'm personally narrowing my vision down to my phone, uh, which is very small, so I can see you all. So looking up and out is absolutely brilliant. I, I think that each one of our of communities and our synagogues in a whole, uh, it's really interesting, isn't it? Struggles, as you, you were saying, between the battle from em entropy to um, out of entropy, which I, I thought was fascinating, to defy entropy. And I think that um, we struggle with this thing of homeostasis, that we, we're, an inst we're institutions that want to keep things the same, because that, that's what we're here there to do in so many of the minds of who we are, is let's continue continuity. Um, and and I, I see that happening in this fascinating way each and every week as we in our community where we've been coming back into the building and we've been um, 
creating these hybrid services. So we have people in the building, I'm there myself. We have some people who are coming in to be together, to gather, to pray together, to mark life cycle events. And we have this camera, we have a Zoom screen. And, and a lot of our focus is on, should, should you actually now close the arc doors at this point or maybe at this point? Or is this where we're going to actually read our translation? Don't we normally do it like that? So we, we have this drive, this human drive to reassemble everything exactly as it was um, and to keep things the same. And, and, and during the time of COVID, establishing stability has been so important for us as we've experienced this world of, of, of of absolute upheaval I know that as a rabbi I, I want to as much as possible to establish in people's lives security and stability but then it becomes overwhelming and it prevents us from being able to be creative and playful when we need to be so I, I see the tension as between homeostasis keeping everything the same and actually wanting to be disruptive and playful and in this time of crisis, there is opportunity um, if we are able to. So, um, for example, in my own community, we've actually managed to, because we've had to, we've had to work as a team. We've had to sit, sit around, all of us around our Zoom screens and really get to grips with what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and for the first time, maybe have those why questions. Why is it important that we do this? What are we trying to do? What's the feeling we want here? In our community, we're using, we say, how can we build the ruach in the room? That's how can we build spirit, emotion, engagement? And that's been fantastic for me um, to see us responding in that way to, to crisis, one where um, it would be so easy to spend all of our time saying, um, should we um, raise the volume here on the on the microphone or, or tweak the camera angle just slightly to the right. And, and of course we have those conversations as well. Um, I also think, and I'm very uh, share personal level that we, we just uh, celebrated a family bat mitzvah this weekend, my daughter's bat mitzvah. And- um, Mazal tov. Thank you so much. Um, we are so lucky as Jews to, that we take uh, these, moments of our lives. I know that I'm speaking to people who know that so well, but we are so fortunate that we endow these moments with so much meaning and purpose. Um, and that we see that um, that life is, is just literally pregnant with meaning at all of its moments. Um, and I suppose as I'm talking to you now, I'm realizing that um, the, one of the dangers of homeostasis is missing the new moments that need to be uh, the meaning in the new moments and the meaning in this time, because we will naturally always be somewhat backward looking because we are institutions who do that. So I guess for me, all the way through this, all the way through this time, the images that resonate with me so powerfully are of the destruction of the temple and Yohanan ben Zakkai, who is walking through Jerusalem with the dust on his feet, Oilanu, um, woe to us that the place that made atonement for us is no longer here. And of course, the answer to that is um, we no longer need the temple. We need acts of uh, we need acts of loving kindness. And as I was thinking about today, about our conversation today, how good are your tents and your gathering places? 
I noticed that there's this wonderful, um, wonderful midrash, a very, very old midrash, midrash Tanhuma, that says, Mishkanotecha, your dwelling place is the place where you literally dwell in, actually is related to the word Mishken, um, which means your pledges. Uh, that is a pledge um, that you 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 give for um, a monetary pledge or a physical pledge, often that is seized in the payment of a debt. Um, and the Midrash says that even when your dwelling places are in ruins, they are mish, they're mishken, mishkon, they are pledges, they are seized in the payment of a debt. So even a destroyed place, which the rabbis thought God had deliberately destroyed as a punishment, has value because the destruction is paying back for something, is paying back some, for some kind of awful, atonable sin. So even destroyed or places are not without, of, not without value, that they're actually full of value. The things that don't work for us anymore, full of value and meaning for us, full of spiritual meaning. Um, and I find that very fascinating to think about, um, about the meaning of things when they're broken and no longer working for us anymore, that that in itself may have some kind of sense for us of uh, really bringing, uh, bringing the possibility of mourning and loss um, and destruction, um, bringing that into the beginning and the middle of the conversation about what our communities are doing and why we're here. Yeah. Shulamit, you so correctly point to the difference between mourning and loss and destruction. That was your third word, mourning, loss, and destruction, which we have suffered now exactly as it was suffered once upon a time back in the temple's days. And you contrast that very nicely, I think, with creativity and playfulness. How does one move from mourning and loss to creativity and playfulness? Uh, people don't get there on their own. They get there because they hear a message that gets them there. And they hear a message that has significance beyond themselves. They begin to dream. So it's really interesting that when the rabbis leave the temple, they go to Yavne. Now, uh, Yavne is a town, we all know, and that's the name where the place where they're said to have settled. But we also know that in rabbinic literature, the names mean something. So for example, there are these two people in Jewish tradition called Hillel and Shammai. And they were debaters, as we all know, and Hillel always wins, pretty much always wins. Hillel's the good guy and Shammai is the put up loser who, who, who usually doesn't win. It's interesting to see that Hillel therefore means praise and Shammai means, well, maybe. So, I mean, even there, the names of the people mean something. So we should pay attention to Yavne, it means building, we will build. Well, Yavne is to build, but it's the same idea, you know, we will build. So the, the rabbis insisted on moving from despair to building. Uh, think of it, they could have gone to some place and called it, in the literature, they could have called it anything, right? They could have called it, we will go home, or we'll sit here and wait, or something like that, or we'll despair, or a time for nothing, or God help us. But no, we will build. And so we are now going to enter a period of building. And that's the exciting part. 
you've you've reminded me between you of uh, a congregant of a congregation i think of of refugees from the nazis who went to south america and they called their synagogue kahila kadosha lamrot hakol you know in spite of everything um gorgeous. and they're about the names gorgeous right yeah so we're we could, I sense, go and talk, on talking about this for hours, and we don't have that long, um, unfortunately. So I want to pick up on on Shulamit's early statement about prayer um, and the difficulty of it in this day and age, and, and see if we can do a little bit of justice on that, but also frame it in perhaps a final question. I think we've only got time really for one more, which is what what is emerging from this time um, that you would recommend those involved in synagogues would take forward with them? And I think we've already got some things, you know, don't dwell on the morning with a, a you in it, but dwell on the building um, and uh, how we build on the relationships and the conversations we want to have. But some thoughts there for, for both of you really about What's the way forward from here? So, um, Larry, may I start with you? You're going to have to invite us back again so we can do justice to prayer. I, I, I mean, that's a huge topic for me, as you know, and it's really important because show me correctly. So, Larry talked about prayer, so I don't want to linger on it, but I just want to pick up on that one aspect. I will say, yeah, so I will simply say that uh, in every age, technology determines how we pray. Uh, so that until there was printing, there was a different kind of prayer. It was, I won't go into it. Printing changed everything. It was black on white. And now, of course, you had to do it all. Uh, I call that doing it all, doing it all according to Hoyle. I call that uh, doing it uh, right. We have to take a look at what the new technology is teaching us. And that is to doing it right is not always doing it well. To do it well is to have in mind the people who are there, the people who should meet so, so, so properly interprets as the, who should be our focus. It's their lives that matter. It's not the stupid book. And so in fact, we are coming to an age when in fact we are gonna be post book worshipers and we will be worshipers who have ritualized for people. That's gonna be the most important thing. Um, what do we want to, what should we take moving forward? Just a couple of other things. The first thing I think is that um, uh, we need to think differently. Uh, if you always think the way you always thought, you'll always get what you've always got. And so it's important for us to actually think differently. And the only way we're going to do that uh, is if we take a look at our, uh, the people who, the lay people and the clergy who run our synagogues, you don't call them boards over there, I think, as I recall, we, we call them boards here. What's your term? I can't remember. Usually synagogue councils. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. So you have to then think about synagogue councils. If you're like us, most of our time is spent on, uh, on uh, managerial issues. Who shall we hire? You know, what should we do about the roof and so on, or uh, financial issues? And um, boards are always putting out, or rather, pardon me, councils are always putting out fires. You know, Mrs. Schwartz complains about this, and what will we do about that? 
But in fact, the only way that they're going to think things through and think differently is to do what's called generative conversations. I wish I could tell you exactly what's going to futures is going to be and what you ought to do. I wish I knew what I ought to do. Never mind what you ought to do. But no one knows this. One thing we know, take the rabbis as an example. When they go to Yavne, what they do is they discuss. I mean, it's interesting that our, our rabbinic literature is all about discussions back and forth because nobody knew for sure what should they should do. Um, these, these, are, these, are, these are called uh, adaptive challenges in the literature of change, literature of management. Adaptive challenges are where nobody knows the answer, but altogether we will get to an answer. And it's fun trying to get there. But you have to allow time for it. And that's why a third of your time should be spent in generative, in generative conversation. And one kind of conversation, probably the most important kind at the moment in that generative conversation is given what we've been through and given where we are now and listening to the kind of things that Shulamit is talking about, that she knows full well from better than I, because she's actually doing it on the ground, as are, as are you, Richard. So the most important thing is actually to get straight what is our mission? Why in the world are we here? When I, when I, when I consult with synagogues, um, I insist on them taking the time and, and asking themselves, well, I don't call it a mission, uh, councils, members of your council's eyes will just glaze over when they have to do a mission statement. Don't try that. But I call it a Shema statement. What's the one line by which you will live and die in this synagogue? And I help them find a Shema statement. They need to have something profound that moves them. And then everything then must revolve about that. If we know where we're going, then we will get there. But you know, isn't it uh, Alice in Wonderland where, uh, where you know, the Cheshire cat says, if you don't know where you're going, then any route will get you there. Well, too many synagogues don't know where they're going. And so they try any old route and it sets them there. It's just, there's no there there. And so I would urge people now to say, what an opportunity to zero down on what really matters to us. Because being at home for a year and a half, we now know the things that matter. That's a human condition. It's the need for us to, 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 to be true to what, to what we, we are as human beings, mortals who seek eternity, uh, people who seek meaning, and people who know that there's more to life than just going out to dinner and whatever the stuff that we used to do. Thank you so much, Larry, for that. And I have a feeling I'm going to carry some of those ideas into my synagogue AGM tonight. Um, Shulamit, what about you and your thoughts? Just... Sorry, I didn't unmute then. I feel very reassured by what Larry's just said. Um, we've just um, actually taken this time as a community to, to work on our vision and our mission. And um, really interestingly, so we, we using that, um, all of, there's so much evidence out there in the world of leadership about how to do that, about building a small group of people who are really passionate as a guiding coalition, who can, who can uh, come together to create this project. And we've, we've now actually managed to do this. I'm so excited about it because it's got all the heart and soul that comes from this time and has really helped us to focus in on what's really important to us. And that that's a great thing, as you're saying, when you have to adapt to 
enormous change. Um, so I'm excited to be at the stage of, and I, I've just opened it up on my computer and I have it in front of me and, and, and really start to think about how to uh, wind that through every single thing that we do so that we can hold up what we're doing and say, does this reflect who we are and who we want to be? Because maybe we're not quite there yet with who we want to be. I would add um, about being playful and being willing to make mistakes. And I would say that um, my, I, th I think my real kind of set, what I want to center in myself in, in a positive way instead of a negative way is being open, openly not knowing. So open to, because, because of that tendency for us to replace in a vacuum, fill up the vacuum with everything that we used to do. I think it's really important at this stage to be able to be really open to not knowing actually how to pray at this time um, and not knowing what, what even where we are with God, where we are. Uh, certainly, I think we know a lot more about where we are with each other and our tradition and being able to, to face that and to bring that into the reality of the, the time we're in more bravely instead of turning, turning away from that. Um, because I think that could be quite powerful. Um, our synagogues, we have constitutions, we have a memorandum of what we're here to do, but we're not really here to do often what it says on the paper, we're here to do something else. And the other thing I would say is we're probably all really great at the technology by now, or if we're not, we're trying to be, like the zoom lens and the camera and the microphone, the muting and unmuting, but actually it's the heart and soul that's important. It's the emotional connection. It's reconnecting with each other in real life. Um, it's working out how to pray and join our voices together when we can't sing together. It's, it's actually finding out what, what did feel emotionally meaningful, what did feel spiritually meaningful in that moment. And how can we learn that again? Because hopefully if we were lucky, we did it before. We kind of lost it. We're learning it again. But I think we have to want to learn it again in a new way. And, and that feels where the threshold that I'm on at the moment with a real genuine question about how to do that. And I know it when I feel it. So I think it is possible, but I don't know enough about how to, how to do that. I feel like I'm really learning that. And I think um, it's, it's really okay to be in, as a, a learner. If we can continue to be learners, as the rabbis were, you say at Yavna, they just started learning. They allowed themselves to be learners and to frame themselves as learners pretty much permanently. I think that's not a bad way to keep going forward. That is quite beautiful, you know. Um, can I, I feel like we've now returned uh, to the beginning of the program with some never see a map. And what you describe yourself as doing so well, and what I think every rabbi has to do, and do it with their people. No, no one person, you know, well, no one person can do it. But um, you're providing a map because it's a map of, of where we are, a map of where we should go, a map of what the world is now like. We don't know that. Um, there's a book called Maps Are Not Territory. People think they know the territory, but if they don't know the map of the territory, you know, you have to find something, you're, you're, you're shopping and there's the things as you are here. 
So you are here. Then you know where you want to go. Where are we? We don't even know here. We don't know where we are because we don't have a sense of the map. Uh, I guess I'd conclude with one thought, and that is that when there are three parts on every Jewish map, every human map, because as I said before, we, we know that to be Jewish is to be human. Judaism is a response to humanity, the Jewish way I think of it as being. And those are mind, heart, and soul. We regularly discuss people in terms of their mind, their heart, and soul. Uh, no one's really seen any of those. I don't mean this, the, the heart that you know gets fixed uh, with a stent. That's not what we mean by heart. And we know that the brain is not the mind. And we can't, we can't see any of those three things. But actually, wherever there, is a hum there are human beings, those three things have to be on the map. And so I'm just arguing that, uh, that you, when, you get, when you do this planning, that uh, synagogues do this planning, uh, they ask themselves, uh, however, whatever we do, is there, is there a space called mind, heart, and soul that will travel with people and that they'll see that to be in a synagogue, part of a synagogue is to rediscover the human mind and heart and soul. Thank you so much, Larry and Shulamit. Your, your closing comments have been so inspiring. I, I'm reminded that in, in an age where populism can be around and that populism tends to have a dogmatic certainty, that you're both talking about what I would call the oxymoron of being confidently uncertain that it takes a supreme confidence to admit we don't know, as you were talking about, Shulamit, to admit we're learning and to accept that we don't have the answers and to look for those, and I think the phrase you used, Larry, Larry was those generative conversations that we can have that will help us work out the the map of, of where we are and where we're going. And between the two of you, I, I feel like I've got so much to, to work on and work with that I'm very grateful to you both for contributing so much to this, this episode of our podcast. And uh, this is the essence of being progressively Jewish. So Shulamit and Larry, thank you both very much indeed. And thanks to the two of you. It's been thank a, you. such a pleasure. What an honor. Honestly, it's been such an honor to be in this conversation. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much again. So this was a conversation that could have gone on for much, much longer. But my thanks on everyone's behalf go to our guests this week, Rabbis Larry Hoffman and Shulamit Ambalu. Our thanks also go to Liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism and Leobet College for supporting Progressively Jewish and to you, our listeners, for making this effort worthwhile. Please do send us your questions so that we can build future episodes around your interests, concerns and feedback. Do leave a comment with your podcast provider or send an email to progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to Progressively Jewish and encourage your friends to do the same. In next week's episode, which moves forward to the theme of tolerance, Rabbi Debbie Young Summers will be exploring this topic with representatives from different faiths. <laughs>